Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and this is my review of the year 2022. This is my totally subjective look back at the year just gone and all of its Tudor and not just Tudor history. And it's the last new episode of the year. So it gives me a chance to review books, exhibitions, TV, and to round up all the relevant historical discoveries of the year. And it's been quite a year. Every year I choose five of the best historical books of the year to recommend in this podcast. The criteria is they have to have been published in the year just gone and they all draw on history from what I think of as our not just the Tudors period, so somewhere between 1492 and 1692. And this year it has been difficult to whittle it down to five. But I do have a list of five history books for you where I've compromised it that this year I've added one novel to the list as well. So here's my recommendations for books of 2022 by author's surname. The first book that I absolutely have to recommend after this year of reading is The Siege of Loyalty House by Jesse Childs. This book is utterly beautiful. It's so well written. It's sensitive. It's deeply, deeply researched. It's a work of micro-history. It tells the story of the British Civil War through one siege, one moment of hell at Basing House, the largest non-royal house in 17th century England. Jessie Charles came on the podcast early in the year and I asked her why she wrote this story. I wasn't sure for a while, actually, if it would fly as a book because I loved the story. I always remembered and had in my head this image of Inigo Jones, the great architect of the age. He was 72 years old at the time of the storming of Basinghouse and he was stripped of his clothes and carried out wrapped in a blanket. And I've always remembered that image, but I wasn't sure if there would be enough characters and people. And what I wanted to do was tell the story of really the whole civil war, explain the civil war and the impact of the war and the before, the during and the after through various individual lives without confusing the reader too, too much. And actually, the more I researched and the more I dug down into the archives, I just got completely excited and thrilled because there are some characters, and I keep saying characters as if it's a novel, but they felt like that. They felt very, very vivid to me. And through their lives, I realized I could sort of tell the story of the build-up to war and then everything else that goes on. So it was kind of thrilling. But I hope it's not, I mean, it's certainly not just military history. It's social history and religious history and European history and political and everything. So yes, start with the small and hopefully it sort of blossoms out. You are trying in this, as you just said, to tell the story of the Civil War more generally. Why has it failed to capture the public imagination thus far? Your book may change things, I hope. Thus far, exactly. <laughs> you could argue that because of the restoration, because the Republic ultimately failed and we had a king again, it wasn't quite the revolution in the same way that you can talk about the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. And that would be right. I think you could also say that civil war wasn't so impactful and so contemporary in terms of relevance as, say, the American Civil War. I mean, you only have to look at the Gettysburg National Park and compare it to Naseby Battlefield to see 
you know, the different impacts they have on the national consciousness. And that would be right too, but it doesn't really fully explain it because the civil war did loom large with the Victorians. And it's only really quite recently that we've stopped talking about it. And as you say, I think that will change. But I think a lot of it is to do with the people who are in charge with what we study, whether it's the national curriculum at school, whether it's TV programs, whether it's movies even. There certainly used to be a bit of a sort of reticence about taking on the civil war. Civil war doesn't sell, you know, we've all been told. And actually, when we did a big documentary on it, presented by Lisa Hilton, based largely on Leander de Lau's White King, it did really, really well. So I think a bit like Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. I think especially now, the civil war really, really matters because it is a time again of war in Europe and populism and Puritanism and a polarizing new media and culture change, of course, climate change as well. The mid-17th century was the most intense phase of the Little Ice Age. So I think now is the time to have a look again at how all these movements can really cause global crisis. The Siege of Loyalty House is one of the best history books I've ever read. It's powerful, it's fascinating, it's vivid. I don't think it's got the attention it should have done, but trust me on this, put it in your basket today. While you're there, you might want to add Restless Republic, Britain Without a Crown by Anna Kay. This picks up where Loyalty House ends. It tells the story of the 1650s through nine individual lives, conveying the national story through these protagonists in a vital, arresting way. And it was shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize for non-fiction. Here's Dr Kay talking to me about the book and her first choice of character earlier this year. But I thought to begin with, because my period had very clear edges to it, it was the Republican years, it was from the execution of Charles I to the Restoration, so I thought I needed a figure connected to the execution of Charles I, and it just struck me that John Bradshaw, the man who tried the king, somebody who you feel like we really all ought to know his name, it's a pretty extraordinary thing that he presided over, and yet not only is he not known at all, really, outside those who work on this stuff, there's never been a decent biography of him. There's one book written by an American Bradshaw family member, which is sort of family history. So I just thought, let's start with him. Gets us right in at the action. And I like the thought that the book could begin. You could zoom right in, as it were, to Westminster, to the trial, the moment of the new kind of status quo or the new world order beginning. And I followed him. And he turned out to be an incredibly interesting character because the other thing I was really concerned about was that I think quite often it can really seem like the Puritans... So I suppose that like, depends how you approach it. For some people, great heroes, particularly as progressives. For other people, great iconoclasts and killjoys and destroyers of the order. But I felt like they were quite difficult to get close to. And so I thought that was another good reason to start with him. And as is the case always with figures in history, people are never two-dimensional. So it was with him. He seems particularly interesting because he's having to square this trial with his conscience. What do you think his experience was during the trial? Yes, I think he turned down the position of Lord President of the group of commissioners who tried the king, as several other people did. It was a pretty big ask of anyone. And he was obviously really torn about it, and I think that was true of a lot of people who participated in that trial. And one of the reasons I wanted to follow him before we get to the trial is to understand his backstory. And essentially, he was a lawyer, came from very respectable, quite affluent gentry stock in Cheshire. But he had an experience of trying to manage the town that he was mayor of during a really awful, long outbreak of the plague. And my reading of it was that you can see his political activism started straight after that and he'd been really not politically active at all until that point was that he like lots of people at the time with this very kind of providentialist understanding of the world saw these horrors being visited on England in the form of this case plague as an expression of God's discontent with the way things were and so I think when he was thinking about the trial of Charles I been asked to take the role of heading the commissioners he obviously really searched his conscience about it. He came to the view in the end that he would act. And there's an interesting thing he says about how to allow the guilty to go unchallenged as much of a sin as to condemn the innocent. So I think he felt that God was expecting it of him. But I don't think he ever felt uncomplicated about it because earlier on during the Civil War, he wasn't a sort of doctrinaire, parliamentarian or Puritan. He was very conscious of the sort of legal limitations to what was happening. But once he had decided that he would accept the commission, he was wedded to the idea of the original republic till his dying day, which was just before the end of the period. Anna Kay's compelling, 
wonderful style meant that this decade, which has been rather sort of arid in my imagination, came absolutely to life. And I felt the excitement of this tumultuous decade. It was a book I absolutely devoured. It is highly recommended. As is The House of Dudley, a new history of Tudor England by Joanne Paul. Dr. Joanne Paul has revealed herself this year as a brilliant new voice in narrative history. In this book, she tells the story of one of the great families of Tudor England, a family that seesawed between high favour and low disgrace, the Dudleys. It's a wonderful, evocative read that looks at all the Dudleys, including the women, and brings them vividly to life. I spoke to her about the accession of Mary I and the downfall of one member of the family, John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland. It happens 42 years and a day or something very similar from the execution of his own father. So when Jane comes to the throne, everyone, even Mary's allies, thinks that she's not going to put up a fight, that she's either going to become arrested or she's going to flee. She simply can't deal with the military juggernaut that is the Dudley family. And everyone is wrong. And so Mary realizes that Edward's about to die and she flees away from London, starts gathering her forces, and eventually Dudley and his sons are forced to go after her. There is talk initially that it's going to be Jane Dudley's father who goes, but apparently not Queen Jane. (laughs) Quasi-Queen Jane throws a bit of a fit and won't let him go. And so it's John Dudley who has to go. I think he's aware that in leaving London, the council might turn on him, and that's precisely what happens. They are persecuting people who are condemning the reign of Queen Jane in the morning, and then by the evening they've declared for Queen Mary. So it happens in the space of a day, and John and his family are left adrift. So he's brought back to London as a traitor, he's imprisoned, and he is fairly quickly executed. And he makes this astonishing conversion to Catholicism on the scaffold, Do you think this is to try and save his family? I think that there's a very good chance that that is the case. There is an interpretation of John Dudley that he's always instrumentalist about religion. He sort of flip-flops throughout his life. There isn't a lot of evidence for that. It is a contemporary accusation that's raised against him by John Knox. Well, I guess John Knox is the opposite, you know, is as extreme in belief as you can get. So anyone, by comparison, is a bit of a flip-flop. He's evangelical from the late 1520s, early 1530s. He executes Edward's reforms. He never seems to have any religious qualms about doing so. He writes to Mary enforcing Edward's belief that she should convert. There's nothing to suggest that he is anything but evangelical. On the day before he is executed, he makes a very public conversion to Catholicism and reinforces that in his scaffold speech. I suspect it is an attempt to save his family. I don't think he thinks it's going to save his skin, and I don't think he thinks it's going to save his soul. I think he thinks it's for his children. From the well-known to the forgotten, the fourth book I want to recommend is Maritime Musicians and Performers on Early Modern English Voyages, The Lives of the Seafaring Middle Class. Written by James Seth, it tells the story of people who have been historically absent from conversations about English maritime culture. Performers on board ship have typically been described rather reductively as having one function. But Dr. Seth shows how they served many communicative tasks, mediating between parties using music, dance and theatre as non-verbal communication. On many of these early voyages, they had not encountered various cultures before and didn't know exactly how to approach them. And so you have these sort of rituals of getting together and having conversations and having feasts. One phrase that I use quite often in my book is kind entertainment. And this phrase doesn't just indicate like performance necessarily, but kind entertainment was given usually in diplomatic occasions to bridge cultural barriers 
And it could involve a number of things. It could involve just conversations. It could involve trading wares. Typically, when the English were in non-Christian nations or when they were trying to Christianize as well, then they would have conversations about Christianity. But they would also perform and give elaborate performances. I think in these either tense or difficult negotiations, then you have the musicians who were at the ready to give kind entertainment, whatever they were needed. And in various different kinds of spaces, different forms of locations. But then you also had musicians who were also at the ready to give warnings for other crew members back at the ship or near the ship. So I think you had musicians at different spaces, different levels who were doing different things. People who were performing, people who were also communicating and at the ready. Dr. Seth's work shows that maritime musicians were highly skilled people, integral to maritime history. And this has beautifully restored their voices to our past. Finally, I want to recommend a masterpiece that gives an overview of the entire Tudor century, Lucy Wooding's Tudor England, A New History. Dr. Wooding has pulled off in this book the seemingly impossible. She's written a book that gives us a sense of all the latest research on the period, that engages with literature and political, social and religious history that tells both the high political story and the story of the commons, the ordinary folk, that makes sure women are firmly included in the narrative and that does all of that in deliciously readable, lucid prose. It's so smart. It's so intelligent. It is an absolutely vital read. Here's a little clip from my interview with her. She says that in recent years, we've come to realise that we may have been almost completely wrong about Mary the First. Here she tells me what we should make of Britain's first crowned Queen Regnant and how people responded to her accession at the time. She thought that the people loved her and she was emphatic that she had come to the throne through popular backing. And we've always dismissed that claim. That was a stupid woman who didn't know what she was talking about sort of thing. But actually, I think she might have had a point. She might have known better than all the generations of historians who later condemned her. And I was fascinated by your reflections on the way in which Mary's religion, which of course is always characterised as something quite extreme because of the nearly 300 Protestant martyrs, was actual fact much like that of her father, a kind of not very superstitious version of Catholicism. <laughs> if I can put it like that. Even the burning of heretics. Henry VIII burnt heretics, as oh, yes. you point out. Yes, everybody burns heretics, <laughs> given half a chance. Even Edward VI burnt a couple, Anabaptists. Yeah, everyone who's anyone in the 16th century gets a really quite extraordinary education, a humanist education. They're taught Latin, they're very often taught Greek, they are taught to respect the great works of classical antiquity. And they are taught to read the Bible and appreciate the complexities of its text. And Mary, as a princess of Wales, was given the same extraordinary education of all the other Tudor children. And she is, I think, like her mother, like her grandmother. She is a forceful, intelligent, insightful woman. And she has a vision of her Catholic church, which is not just reactionary it's not just putting the clock back she wants a catholic church which has been purged of any error reformed and strengthened and inspired so that she puts a huge amount of investment into the universities she sponsors some very interesting printed books in defense of catholicism she insists that her clergy should be educated and quite impressive individuals and her cousin, Cardinal Paul, her Archbishop of Canterbury, calls a reforming synod at Lambeth, which brings in various reforms, including, interestingly, the idea that you should actually be educating your clergy specifically for ministry. So the idea of seminaries, which was to be a great counter-reformation idea. But it was Mary's church that had that idea, or first gave concrete expression to that idea. So her vision of Catholicism, I think, is quite an inspired one. And certainly it inspires almost universal refusal by Elizabeth's bench of bishops to accept the Elizabethan settlement. So Elizabeth faces an unprecedented level of opposition from the bishops when she takes over. 
And a great many people go into exile. So quite a lot of Mary in Oxford, when Elizabeth comes to the throne, they all disappear to places like Louvain. And they form Catholic communities there. And the sort of strength of their resistance, I think, is a testimony to Mary's success, even in those five brief years. Her success at building a really inspired vision of a Catholic church in England. And finally... My bonus one, I want to recommend a novel. The Bewitching by Jill Dawson tells the story of one of the most famous English witch trials of the 16th century, the alleged bewitching of the five daughters of Robert Throckmorton by the so-called witches of war boys. It's a really intelligent, sparkling, historically sensitive novel inspired by the real events of 1593. Here's a clip from my interview with Jill Dawson. So there's a very long pamphlet, really, for the time, 111 pages telling the story. The authors of the pamphlet are thought to have been the girl's uncles, one of them the vicar next door, another an uncle who later became quite a prominent witch finder, and possibly the girl's father, Robert Throckmorton. So we know this pamphlet isn't an unbiased document. Nevertheless, it's fascinating. It's incredibly detailed. Lots and lots of sort of language and dialogue the sort of idea of what Alice might have said when she was accused of witchcraft is in there. And the fact that she calls them curs and rogues and my God will protect me, she says. And then they take this as a, oh, your God, who's that then? Whereas we can also understand her just meaning God will protect me. So there is this amazing document, which I felt at first, almost in my first attempt at this novel, I cleaved to rather too faithfully. And in an early draft, it was simply the retelling and it didn't add anything. But without wanting to give too many spoilers away in this novel, the very powerful subplot of what had actually happened to Alice in her youth came to me also through research and through what I think of as a process of the logic of research and imagination rather than complete imposition, if you like. And this went like this. So I'm reading up about folklore of the time and reading about this idea of Plough Monday, which comes up a lot. I live in a rural area of Cambridgeshire. People really still remember this detail in January where young men went around in great hordes, dragging a plough, blacking up their faces with soot. Molly dancers, some of them were dressed up as a woman, and they would be begging and banging on doors, getting very drunk, saying, we'll plough up your lawn if you don't give us your money. So in reading about that, I just suddenly remembered where I grew up in Yorkshire, where we had something called Naughty Night. <laughs> and it was the night before Guy Fawkes. And it was similarly a very old tradition where people just were allowed to misbehave. And then I also thought, yes, but it never felt that safe and comfortable because it was great big crowds of young men. So in the thinking I did in my novel, I thought, yes, historians have mentioned this lovely folk tradition, Plough Monday. But if you were two women living alone, if you had a very vulnerable, beautiful daughter, if you're an old woman on your own, then crowds of men coming by would not be so much fun. And so the subplot for The Bewitching arose out of my thinking about that and what that would have meant for the women in this community. And it isn't then to me so much of a leap. I have difficulty completely imposing something. <laughs> I know that other novelists can do this, and of course, <laughs> it's fiction. But for me, there's something about this following a logic of imagination that feels more comfortable. A wonderful evocation of how some historical novelists can feel their way into the past so convincingly. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of The Ancients from History Hit, where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? The Oracle certainly operated, certainly gave many thousands these prophecies, and they were taken seriously in most cases. What can be discovered from lost civilizations? There was a lot of volcanic activity, and in one of these sites called Quicoco actually got covered with volcanic flows, and the early archaeologists, they used 
dynamite, you know, to get at this archaeology. And was King Arthur actually real? Ambrosius is far less well known. It looks as if he has got a significant impact on the creation of the Arthur story itself. You can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. What else has been notable this year? Well, following delays induced by COVID, 2022 has seen some rather fantastic exhibitions. The first, I know sadly only by reputation rather than having been myself, but all reports are that there has been a glittering exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. The Tudors Art and Majesty in Renaissance England features over 100 exquisite objects, including portraits, sculpture, tapestries, furniture, silver, and the field armour of Henry VIII. A celebration of the material objects that the Tudor dynasty used to show their power, prestige, and wealth The exhibition charts how the family pursued the finest of everything, from tapestries and books to Florentine sculptors and European goldsmiths. If you're lucky enough to be based in New York or can get there, you have a few days. The exhibition is open until the 8th of January 2023. Closer to home here in the UK, the Holborn Museum in Bath hosted earlier this year a bevy of Tudor portraits, calling the exhibition The Tudors, Passion, Power and Politics. The exhibition also later went to the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool, where it was expanded, presenting the five Tudor monarchs, or maybe six, alongside their most powerful courtiers and councillors. Many of the works, which were on loan from the National Portrait Gallery in London, had never before been seen outside of London. I was lucky enough to visit the exhibition in Bath, coming face-to-face with Thomas More, Cromwell, Lady Jane Grey, Robert Dudley, Elizabeth I, William Sissel, Mary Queen of Scots and Francis Walsingham. Here I am talking about it with the curator of the Holborn exhibition, Montserrat Pismarcos. So we start with these playing card type portraits of Henry VII and Elizabeth <laughs> of York. They really indicate to us that the Renaissance hasn't quite happened in England at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Is that unfair? I would say the portrait of Henry VII is a really interesting piece to look at, not just because it is a wonderful portrait, but also because it has a couple of details that are very of the time. So one of them is the frame. It is a single piece of oak that was carved from, so the frame is original, it's integral to the panel. And the other thing is that it's dated, and that's not something that we can say of all two the portraits. So we know for sure that it was painted on the 29th of October, 1505. So we have the exact date in which this portrait was taken from the life. Which is, I guess, something still very relatable, the fact that we like to keep track of when we have our portrait taken or when we take this significant photo of our lives. So it was the same for the king. He was being painted as a way of selling himself as a suitable match for a princess in continental Europe. But unfortunately, the marriage didn't go ahead. But we don't know who the artist is. It's strange that the inscription doesn't give us that detail unless... This Herman is <laughs> the name of his first name. It seems unusual that we know when it was painted, but not by whom. We know who it was commissioned by, yes, but 
we didn't always know the names of artists at the time. Mm -hmm. And the name of the artist, although being relevant in terms of payment, the vision of the artist as we understand it today didn't fully exist. An artist was a craftsman and something would be made in their workshop and it would be made by that workshop. But even if it was made by a student, as long as the signature, the brand was on, it would be passed as being this artist or another. So the fact that we've lost so many names is not so surprising, really. They were just servants, really. Well, artisans, yes. Craftspeople. Now, there have been some incredible discoveries in 2022. In this year, in fact, in the very month of the 40th anniversary of the raising of Henry VIII's warship, the Mary Rose, in October, Swedish archaeologists found the wreck of a 17th century warship in a strait off the island of Vuxholm, just outside of Stockholm. The ship has been identified as the applet, Apple, the long-lost sister ship of the Vasa that was launched in 1629. The ships were commissioned by the Vasa family, a Swedish dynasty founded in 1523 that roared until 1654. It seems likely that the applet was sunk on purpose after it was decommissioned, serving as an underwater spike to snag enemy vessels. Also in October, the hosts of BBC's Antiques Roadshow were blown away when the owners of Wollaton Hall in Nottingham produced a never-before-seen collection of Elizabethan textiles. The collection includes a bedspread and pillowcases sewn by Queen Elizabeth I and her ladies-in-waiting, as well as an extremely rare ivory silk satin sleeve and sleeve support. No examples of sleeve supports, known as a farthingale sleeve, have ever been found before. All that we knew of such textiles were descriptions in the accounts for the royal wardrobe, so to find an extant example was incredible. The farthingale sleeve was made from thick cotton called fustian and was stitched with 14 casings of linen, each containing a hoop of baleen or whalebone. It was used to support the very large gown sleeves worn by Elizabeth in the Ditchley portrait. Now, further afield, in Peru and South America, scientists unearthed an Inca-era tomb under a home in the heart of Lima, the capital city, a burial believed to hold remains wrapped in cloth alongside ceramics and fine ornaments. It is likely that those entombed were from the elite Ruricanco society, a culture that once populated present-day Lima before the Inca dominated the area. And returning to shipwrecks, 2022 was also the year that the Bahamas gave up its precious cargo of a Spanish galleon from 1656. Finds included jewel-encrusted pendants, an elaborate gold filigree chain with rosette motifs, and a gold pendant bearing the cross of Santiago with an Indian Beazor stone, which was valued in Europe for its healing properties and recognised by pilgrims heading for Santiago de Compostela in Galicia. This particular gold pendant is one of a number of finds linked to the Sacred Order of Santiago, a military religious order of knights who protected pilgrims and were active in Spain's maritime trade. The ship was called Nuestra Señora de las Maravillas, Our Lady of Wonders, part of a fleet heading home to Spain from Havana with treasures from the Americas. It sank on the 4th of January 1656, following a navigational error, and collided with its fleet flagship. It hit a reef, and only 45 of the 650 people on board survived, with many eaten by sharks. There have also been some notable discoveries made of documents this year, shedding light on early modern monarchs. Financial records from the kitchens in the homes of Mary, Queen of Scots, or at least perhaps her places she was imprisoned, have given us a glimpse into her diet. We have records from Wingfield Manor in Derbyshire and Tutbury Castle in Staffordshire that tell us about what Mary ate while she was imprisoned by her cousin Elizabeth I. Between December 1584 and February 1585, three short months, her menu included beef, veal, mutton, boar and poultry, cod, salmon, eels and herring, spiced with ginger, saffron and nutmeg. She's also said to have enjoyed almonds, capers, olives, figs, fruits preserved in syrup and caraway biscuits. Not a bad diet, especially for a prisoner. 
The itemised expenses also include soap used to clean Mary's bed linen, the salaries of staff who made her bed, and 40 soldiers who guarded her. Extraordinary detail. Another fascinating discovery concerns a 500-year-old secret code that the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V used to write to his ambassador in France in 1547. 1547 was, of course, a year of tension between Spain and France. It's a new French king that year. There's a series of wars between the two powers. And the ciphered letter, which bears Charles's signature, has lived for centuries in the Stanislav Library in Nancy. A team of researchers from the Laurier Research Lab in France spent six months deciphering it. Six months! They found distinct families of around 120 symbols used by Charles, sometimes with whole words encrypted with a single symbol, and the replacing of vowels after consonants with marks, something likely inspired by Arabic. It's a really interesting complex cipher that Charles was using. One extremely enticing revelation from the letter was the rumour of an assassination plot against Charles that was brewing in France, underlying Charles's very real fears about the political tensions at the time. Somewhat on a less grand scale, but sticking with the theme of codes, I spoke to Vanessa Braganza, a PhD student at Harvard, about her deciphering of a monogram sketched by Hans Holbein that was announced this year. First, I asked her how she came across it. I was aware that this jewellery book full of Hans Holbein's sketches of jewellery and designs for other things lived in the British Museum. And so I did some searching online. And so I started to just look through the images. And there are really a good number of these monogram ciphers, which I had been familiar with through my work on Mary Roth. And so I started to delve into the pre-Roth history of these ciphers and their role at the court of Henry VIII. And to be clear, when we're talking about these monograms, I suppose ciphers might make people think of encrypted letters, but what we've actually got here are kind of motifs. If you think of the Louis Vuitton logo, you've got a couple of letters there intertwined. It's that, but on a grander scale. So it's overlapping or combining two or more letters to make a symbol. Yeah, exactly. They riff on the logic of a monogram. And a monogram is just a symbol with first and last initials that will be recognizable to someone who knows the individual. And rather than containing just initials, they contain every letter for a name. And usually it's a pair of names. The context in which these were used were pretty much mostly, if not exclusively, romantic contexts. And so what you can expect is that you're looking to get two names out of them. And it's usually the names of the members of a couple. And fast forward to the 1620s to Mary Roth and her very long prose romance, The Urania. And she actually does more than just make a cipher of her own. She actually has her characters in the Urania making monogram ciphers, and she calls them ciphers as well. So you start to get the blending of the word cipher with these cryptic elements. But yeah, when we use the word cipher in this period, it's really an umbrella term for quite a few different techniques for encrypting messages. And people might well be familiar with H and A intertwined, for example, or H and K, which appears on Henry's armour. But this is, as you say, more than just the first initials. Can you describe the particular monogram that you have decrypted? I remember showing it to, and I still play this game, I'll show it to someone who hasn't seen it yet or who hasn't tried it out yet, and I'll get a look of complete puzzlement. Rather than H and K, which was a very public symbol, this symbol is inscrutable on a first glance, and it's supposed to be. So it's got the letters for Henricus Rex and Catherine all tangled into each other. And the problem that you're supposed to run into when you have that many letters tangled together is that many of them overlap, except for odd ones like C and S, which it's very difficult, if not impossible, to overlap. And so that's what really strikes and intimidates a viewer on first looking at something like that. So you have these letters tangled together. And because it's a drawing, you have the background of the drawing is shaded. This is ink and paper. And so the first things that stand out to you about the drawing of this cipher are not actually necessarily the letters. They're the little squares where jewels are supposed to be mounted. And then you look more closely and you see the leafy decoration. And then you notice the loop at the top where a chain or a ribbon is supposed to be run through. So it's a pendant. And so the order in which you notice things is abridged for a cipher of this density and a drawing of this kind of object as compared to something like H and K, where it's very stark, you know what you're looking at, 
It's a public, it's a political code. It's everywhere. This is supposed to be inscrutable. And it causes you to notice different details in stages so that it foxes the viewer by throwing a lot of information at them. So you're saying this isn't a public declaration. This is something more intimate. And it is this combination of words. And crucially, this is in a book of sketches for jewellery made by Hans Holbein. So you suspect, therefore, that this is created by Hans Holbein? There's not really any question as to the artist. The book is a little generous because in its current state, it's actually a collection of mounted drawings and frames, all of them by Holbein. Only some of them, funnily enough, for jewellery. He covers a lot of different types of designs in this book. They are usually in ink and watercolour. They're not quite invariably black and white, but they're mostly grayscale. And so you get things like designs for book covers, just flourishes that one could carve into wood or work into architectural designs. So jewellery forms a subsection of what he actually draws in his notebook. So there's no real dispute as to the artist. And that is really good when it comes to trying to figure the context of these designs as the provenance actually gives you a boundary that you can work within. So the boundary is presumably what we know of Holbein's career at the court and when we know he died. And that does give us our temporal parameters. But I wanted to ask you about dating because I understand that in this book, there are also sketches for pendants for at least Henry and one of his other wives, Jane Seymour. So what does all this information tell us in the end? What can you deduce about the dating of this monogram? Holbein's second stint in England was from 1532 until his death in 1543. The first stint, he was living with Thomas More, 1526 to 29, at More's house in Chelsea. And so his presence at court in the first episode was not as politically central. He wasn't the king's painter as yet. When he comes back for the second time is when he's at the center of things. And it's quite interesting to think about what it is that Holbein sees in that second stint. So there are designs for a cipher for Henry and Jane Seymour. There's an HA monogram for Henry and Anne Boleyn as well. And so I think what is fortuitous in a way about Holbein's coming back the second time and being the king's painter and witnessing and participating in these transitions is that you start to get really with Henry and Anne, the sense of very claustrophobic secrecy at Henry's court, it manifests in the architecture. If you go to Hampton Court, you get the heraldic symbols of Anne Boleyn that have been effaced after he executed her in the 12 days before he married Jane Seymour. You get the eavesdroppers looking down from the ceiling. And even in poetry in the Devonshire manuscript, which was compiled by a group of courtiers at Henry's court in the 1520s and 30s, you get this obsession with secrecy. The first poem in that manuscript says, take heed but time lest you be spied, your loving eyes you cannot hide. And it goes on for about six stanzas, talking about this idea that you just can't hide your secrets. There are too many people watching. And into that mix, you get this man who is popularizing a way of encrypting things so that it feeds the mania in a way and the political danger and also the appeal This is, of course, this is a pendant. It's meant to be worn. It's not meant to be shut up in a book if it was ever cast. And so there's a real sense also of flirtation with secrecy, not just the danger, but flirting with that danger. It's very interesting to press further on this because I know that the only specific reference we have to Holbein being the royal painter is from September 1536. We don't have the royal account books before that point. So we don't know exactly at what point Holbein started working for the court. We know, of course, Catherine died in January 1536, so that might be an important date for us. And so we have some difficulty being very precise about when this might have been created. But you argue that it was commissioned by Catherine. What's your evidence for that? Working within the historical context, the moment when you extract the letters from one of these monograms and you come up with plausible what may be solutions, then you start to use the historical boundaries to narrow that down. So at the moment when I came up with Henricus Rex and Catherine as possible solutions, the question then became in part one of motive. And by the time Holbein comes back for his second stint and his final stint in England, he comes back approximately the year that Henry probably married Anne in a secret ceremony. 
he comes back very close to the time when Catherine is expelled from court. And he comes back at the point when she's being pushed out. And so if you entertain the solution out of the two parties that may have commissioned it, there's absolutely no incentive on Henry's side. And by contrast, the idea that Catherine could have commissioned it is very much consistent with her political self-positioning in this period. She didn't go quietly. She was enlisting all sorts of help from the Pope, from Charles V, to try and forestall, try and prevent the divorce, and then finally annulment. And so there is zero incentive on Henry's side, Henry, who at that point is designing the Great Hall at Hampton Court for Anne. And there's every incentive on Catherine's side, who's digging her heels in publicly as well as potentially privately. So that's the analysis there. It's fascinating. And it makes sense in the light of what we know. We know that in May 1533, the very month that Henry is more publicly, possibly for the third time, marrying Anne Boleyn and has his marriage to Catherine annulled. Catherine is provocatively ordering new livery for her household embroidered with H and K. So this is very much of a piece with that kind of defiance. And what do you think this adds? What do you think this additionally tells us? It does a couple of things for us. I think more locally, it gives us a hands read on Catherine and really brings her voice to the fore in a way that perhaps in popular culture, certainly non-specialists, I think, tend to focus on and And I think in drawing our eye to Catherine, it does a couple of things. It reorganizes our sense of perhaps networks of communication at Henry's court. One thing that came to my attention in the course of doing the follow-up analysis after coming up with preliminary solutions from this monogram is that there is potential contact between Catherine of Aragon and Hans Holbein, which is interesting politically, given the time that he's at court. But it's it's, it's Juan Vive's uh, education of a Christian woman, which Catherine, of course, commissioned. The frontispiece is designed by Holbein. And so you can put your finger on other connections between these two people that has very interesting political implications for someone like Holbein. I'm constantly fascinated by the way that Holbein is the person behind the canvas. And in a sense, that allows him to be a chameleon. And it's a pun that I enjoy using to change his colors so that he's able to paint Thomas More, paint the king and design a pendant for Catherine of Aragon, potentially, and certainly a frontispiece for a book commissioned by her. So I think it gives us a more an enhanced read on Catherine and her defiance. I think it gives us a more complete and flexible read on networks at Henry's court, networks of political communication, particularly by Holbein. And then I think panning way out, what I tell my students and what I tell people when I talk about this and other work on ciphers that I do, is that it teaches us to look beyond what we expect to find. Certainly to people in the States, this is very old history. And it's history that we've rehearsed over and over again in many different forms by this period. But there's something to be said for looking at history with a questioning eye, looking for the voices that we don't anticipate finding, or looking beyond the ones that we usually go to. And I think that is the space where historical discovery really happens. First of all, that discovery is possible about this history that's half a millennium old. And Secondly, that discovery can only be achieved when we look for the things that we don't think to look for. So I think that's, for me, the most important takeaway. And it's what ciphers teach us. They teach us about what's hidden in plain sight because we may be overlooking it. Something that caused a real stir this year is the last discovery I want to tell you about. It was the unveiling of a 17th century portrait. Valued at around £10 million sterling, the 20 by 18 inch painting appears to depict none other than William Shakespeare. Its attribution is being debated, but it is inscribed with the date 1608 and A.E., short for Etatis Sue, or His Age, and then the numbers 44, which is how old Shakespeare would have been in that year. A court-old institute examination of the picture in 2016 concluded its pigments were consistent with the period, and removing its frame uncovered the stylized letters RP, the cipher of Robert Peake the Elder, who lived from around 1551 to 1619. Peake worked in the office of the Revels, which oversaw the performance of plays for Elizabeth I, so it's very plausible he came in contact with Shakespeare. Furthermore, in 1607, Peake became sergeant painter to King James I. And given that 1608 was the peak of Shakespeare's fame, 
it would make sense for him to have commissioned a portrait from Peake in that same year. Nonetheless, much of this evidence is circumstantial. You can find out more about it online. But it is a tantalising prospect. Finally, 2022 has shown that demand for the Tudors on television remains high. Becoming Elizabeth aired this year on Stars, telling her story as a young princess and her relationship with Thomas Seymour. I talked about it with my panel on our first Not Just the Tudors Lates, and it certainly gave us much to debate. Here's a clip, starting with the voices of actors Tom Cullen and Alicia von Rittberg, and there is one curse word in what follows. I'm sorry. Sorry, Your Grace. I shouldn't be in here. I'm sure I shouldn't be either. You outrank me. I don't believe I outrank anyone, really. I mean, surely those of rank have some power. Well, you'll be craving power, Princess. We'll have to keep an eye on you. No, I just like to be able to make decisions in my life. Ah. Well, I'm quite sick of decisions myself. Quite overwhelmed by them. Your father died and every door is just being flung open. How the hell am I meant to know which ones are walked through? There's death behind a lot of them. There's death behind all of them, sir. Eventually. Are you sorry for? The king is dead. No. No, no. No, he's not. That's the thing with kings. The old one breathes life into the new. And is then forgotten. I don't believe any of us are going to forget your father. <laughs> yeah. Clap me around the face as if I were a schoolboy. He had all those rings. Even my face cannot forget your father. <laughs> Memories. Memories keep a man alive. I've so few of him, though. Every lord and lady out there knew him better than me. Every servant, too. children stand knowing least about I believe that true of all children. You learn much more about your parents after their death than you ever did when they were alive. And as for kings, <laughs> oh, Lord, now we only know the truth of kings in a hundred years when their actions' consequence can truly be seen. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... So intelligently written, but yeah. also so brilliantly acted. Mm. I mean, the two of them go through a full arc each mm. in that scene. And you can see, really conveys, yes, Thomas Seymour, manipulative shit. Mm. But Elizabeth is not a complete victim there. You know, she mm -hmm. keeps a bit of herself, doesn't she? Yeah. She doesn't completely give in. There is a bit of a dance going on and she stops him in his tracks at one or two points. And there's a clever, again, there's a clever foreshadowing. And she goes, I want to make decisions for myself. And later on, when she's queen, she's very, very famous for her answers, answerless. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, I think it's very clever the way they're sort of hinting to the people in the know, like, oh, I can't, I can't mm. that. And then it doesn't matter if you don't. And it may even be purely coincidence. Those were the voices of Alex von Tunzelman, Jesse Childs and Professor Sarah Churchwell. And Dr. Joanne Paul also joined the panel. There will be more Not Just the Tudors Lates coming in the new year. Also this year on television and still available to watch on Netflix, Blood, Sex and Royalty, Anne Boleyn, tells the story of Elizabeth's daughter Anne Boleyn from her own perspective as an extraordinary woman who rewrote the rules. The docudrama combines the insights of historians, including yours truly, with action-packed scripted drama of Henry and Anne's relationship that is very much aimed at the younger generation. Purists will hate it, but it seems to have been rather popular with people of a certain age. 
I think it's a testament to the power of Tudor history that both of these programmes have provoked heated debate and discussion in the media and on social media. And if you haven't had your fill of Tudors on screen, surely not, you can look forward to Firebrand in 2023, which tells the story of Catherine Parr. It features Alicia Vikander as Catherine and Jude Law as Henry VIII. And the film is billed as a thriller, showing how Parr continued her plan to convert Henry to become a Protestant like her. I love the idea that we've got a thriller based on Protestant conversion. The film is inspired by Elizabeth Fremantle's novel The Queen's Gambit and next year I'm going to be speaking to her and to cast members. Now, if you like to move out of the Tudors and into the Stuarts, then you can look forward to two new titles in 2023. Mary and George will be an eight-part drama for Sky and AMC about Mary Villiers, Countess of Buckingham, played by no less than Julianne Moore, and her son George, whom she allegedly moulded to seduce King James I. While Nell Gwynne, being made by the people who made Atonement at Working Title Films, will be a film that tells the story of Charles II's famous commoner mistress. And... Over the Channel, set in France, but earlier in the century, in the reign of Louis XIII, The Three Musketeers, based on the story by Alexandre Dumas, will be released in 2023, starring Eva Green of Bond fame. If you prefer your dramas to be action-packed military affairs, then you might be interested to know about Nor Yang, a forthcoming Korean war drama. Nor Yang will be the third and final instalment of director Kim Han Min's trilogy about the battles led by Yi Sun Sin. If you need a quick bit of background here, in the 16th century, General Toyotomi Hideyoshi unified Japan, bringing an end to the long civil war. Most of neighbouring Korea did not anticipate the possibility of invasion from Japan, so only Admiral Yi Sun Sin prepared for war. When in 1592, Japan invaded Korea, it was only Yi Sun-sin's navy that had any success in repelling enemy forces, stifling their advance and cutting off the sea lines necessary for resupplying the Japanese army. Nyo Yang will tell the story of the last major battle of the Japanese invasions. In case you're not sure if it will be a box office hit, the first film in the trilogy recorded 10 million admissions in just 12 days and grossed 138.3 million US dollars. Our budgets are rather more modest over here on History Hit, but nevertheless, we've got some treats coming up for you on the pod in the new year. Demonic possession in 17th century Canada, indigenous Americans in 16th century Europe, Sir Christopher Hatton, Queen Henrietta Maria, Nonsuch Palace, the Gregorian calendar, and that's just January. Finally, I also want to whet your appetite. I want to tell you about some of the books I know are coming out in 2023, which I think or I know will be particularly good. In January, Dr. Caroline Dodds-Pennock, who previously spoke to me about the Aztecs, has a new book out called On Savage Shores, How Indigenous Americans Discovered Europe, it's groundbreaking, eye-opening. It completely changes one's perspective on the 16th century. And she is coming on the podcast to talk about that. In March, Professor Nicholas Orme, who was shortlisted for the Wolfson Prize for History with his last book, Going to Church in Medieval England, publishes Tudor Children. I can't wait to read it. Also in March, Professor Nandini Das publishes Courting India, England, Mughal India, and the Origins of Empire, which is all about England's first ambassador to India, Sir Thomas Rowe, who visited the court of the Emperor Jahangir in 1615. It's a really important and wonderful book. In May, Simon & Schuster publishes Professor Marion Gibson's Witchcraft, a history in 13 trials, which looks at the history of witchcraft from the Middle Ages to the present day. I haven't read it yet. I can't wait. And also that month, Jesse Norman publishes his first novel, the Winding Stair, which has rightly been described as a dazzling and gripping story of ambition and revenge set in the courts of Elizabethan and Jacobean England. It tells of the rivalry between the brilliant Francis Bacon and the great legal mind Edward Coke. It is very good. Consider ordering them early. It is the best gift you can give an author. And yes, I said order, not pre-order. It is a hill I will die on. I promise to invite them all onto the podcast. Meanwhile... Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year.
Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify. And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.